and welcome to An Endless Pursuit, a podcast on innovation from Bristol Water. I'm Chris Thomas and I look after The Quest, our open innovation program that constantly seeks to improve the experience we can provide our customers. We call it a quest because of the scale of ambition. It is a never-ending pursuit of progress. We're exploring business challenges and solutions across different themes that the water industry faces through discussions with internal and external experts. A key part of customer experience is the right price. Operating efficiently is critical to keeping bills as low as possible, and the theme for this episode is the pursuit of business efficiency. Our discussion this week focuses particularly on technology-enabled efficiency. Every business today runs on technology, which, as we all know, is a fast-moving arena. Do you remember this sound? That's the sound of an old dial-up modem. Clearly, we've moved on a long way from there. We're now in the hype of the fourth industrial revolution, and I want to explore what benefits it might bring to improve businesses and provide efficiencies for customers. If you've not come across it, the fourth industrial revolution is characterised by the interconnectivity of advanced technology, particularly where it crosses the boundaries of cyber, physical and biological. Now, it's an interesting one for me. I often wonder if it's just the strange creation of marketeers. I'll explain. The first industrial revolution was powered by mechanics, so think steam engines. That's very tangible. The second industrial revolution was mass production and electricity, also very tangible. The third industrial revolution was digital, so that's the emergence of personal computing, automation and the internet. I think we could go back further and find more revolutions that impacted our productivity and well-being, so imagine discovering fire or the emergence of communication. When we contrast these big, tangible moments of significant progression, hopefully you can see what I mean. The fourth industrial revolution just feels a bit too convoluted, too contrived, too conceptual. To help me test this concern and assess whether the fourth industrial revolution really offers any tangible efficiencies to businesses and customers, I'm joined by three experts, Dylan Hackett, Dan Atkins and Nick Rutherford. Dylan is the founder of Hackett Consulting Services, HCS, a bespoke intelligent automation consultancy startup. He's self-taught in software robotics, or RPA, and before beginning his own company, worked for Symphony Ventures, a globally renowned RPA consultancy. It was there that he saw a gap in the market for RPA adoption in mid-sized enterprises, using fast implementation models and by fostering self-sufficiency for clients. So in 2018, he launched HCS with the help of Bristol Water's business incubator, The Workshop. Since then, HCS has used The Workshop to help grow its employee and client base. And HCS was recently recognised as a silver partner of the RPA vendor UiPath. Dan is the founder and CEO of Sonic Software, a software company based in Cardiff. And prior to Sonics, Dan spent 10 years at Microsoft and a number of years consulting for financial institutions. His first project was actually reading the Bank of Ireland for Y2K, if you can remember that scare. He founded Sonics four years ago to concentrate on gap software, filling technology needs where standard products don't fit. Today, Sonics employs eight developers and Dan spends his time running the research team or training their upcoming chatbot, Theodora. Sonics are also a new member of the Bristol Water Incubator. Nick is a forward-thinking technology leader, a teaching associate at Warwick Business School and the founder of the Bristol Technology Showcase, a new discussion forum for the implications of the fourth industrial revolution and emerging technologies. Nick provides technology transformation services to the utilities industry and prior to this he spent 18 years in the automotive industry. Nick also leads a cross-industry IT leadership group within the English water market looking at digital innovation for what is the largest water market in the world. Our discussion ranges across what blockchain can offer the markets, the ethical dynamics of artificial intelligence, and how to encourage digital transformation. I hope you enjoy the conversation. 
I'm joined by three very knowledgeable technologists. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Thanks for joining me for today's discussion. We're talking about driving business efficiency. And specifically, we're looking at how we can exploit the power of information to improve how we operate. That means we're talking on the topic of digital tech. So we're going to be talking artificial intelligence, virtual reality, blockchain. And just to keep us in check, I've brought this little bell. Because we can play some buzzword bingo with this. I'll put it in the middle of the table. It's there for anyone to ring if you think we're falling into a world of marketing hype and jargon. So hopefully this isn't going to be too noisy an episode. There's a huge amount of change out there that technology brings to how we provide our services and how we improve them and how we become more efficient. So it's going to be great to get your insights into what some of these changes are, what challenges and opportunities are associated with them and how we can embrace them to pursue efficiencies. So to get our brains in gear, I thought it'd be good to just quickly reflect on some of our own experiences at Bristol Water in driving digitally enabled change and specifically automation. There's a whole range of approaches to driving technology change that we and others use, but one that's relevant to our discussion today is business incubation. So Dylan, you were the first business to join our incubator. Thanks for taking a risk on us. <laughs> That's right. Thanks for taking a risk on us. <laughs> the journey's been quite an exciting one from our perspective at Bristol Water. We've been able to build a capability in robotic process automation in parallel with you building your business in intelligent automation. And it's a fairly different approach to building a new business capability and encouraging adoption into a business. So I'm quite interested in your experience of it, and particularly in contrast to your previous career as an automation consultant, delivering projects in a much more traditional fashion. Yeah, I used to work for a fairly large consultancy where we would go around practicing automation and using automation tools for various different clients. Very much a sort of quote unquote bog standard consultancy. Whereas what we do, I guess, with Bristol Water is a little bit different in terms of having the incubator there to sort of support us. It's been very, very useful. And it's, I guess, a really interesting way to be able to sort of grow the business. And for us, it's a really nice informal relationship, I guess. So in a way, that's really different from what I'm used to in the consulting world, where everything is incredibly formal, everything is priced, and no one does anything for free. And it's all about sort of us and them between the consultancy firm and the business. Whereas I feel with us, with the incubation, we don't have any of that. We feel, and I don't know if you guys feel this as well, but we feel part of the company. And in doing that, you know, it allows us to better understand the needs of the business. So I feel like we're able to support you guys in a much more sort of rich and robust way because we have a much better understanding of the business. I guess it also allows us to try some new things. <laughs> so do a little bit of experimentation. You know, when we would do work under sort of larger consultancies, everything was bought and paid for. So there was no such thing as going out and trying something and sort of seeing where that goes. Whereas I feel like as part of the incubator, you know, that's some of the opportunity that we've got to experiment with things and sort of see how they land and see how well they're potentially going to be received by clients like yourselves. And what difference has that made then to people's adoption of it? Because there's a lot of scare stories around robots and, and what it might mean for people's jobs and, and you know, the, the sort of engagement around it could definitely swing the other way how have you found that yeah so it's a massive thing isn't it when when we talk about automation we we are often sort of framing it in terms of the loss of jobs or the loss of skills and things like that and 
that should not be ignored. And I think, to be honest, that's why we have problems. If we try to ignore that question, then it leaves people sort of falling through the cracks. We try and sort of tackle it fairly head on and frame the conversation around automation as releasing you know, the work that these people don't want to do. So it's pretty rare, basically, in a business that we come across individuals where we can, for instance, automate their entire role. So the idea that we come in and we're just putting people out of jobs left, right and centre, I think isn't really true. And nine times out of 10, like you say, we're removing the work that, that they really don't want to do. <laughs> and so we see the fruits of that in terms of when we get sort of repeat business from internal customers. So quite often we'll do an automation for a team or something like that. And then immediately they'll come back with a whole raft of things that they want doing. And that really just shows that they don't see us as um, a threat. <laughs> you know, they see us as a, a positive influence on their roles where they can free up a lot of the work and a lot of the sort of pain points, basically, that they have. So quick question or quick vote from everybody we've got here. Do we think robots and, and machine learning and the machines in general, do you think they are going to be a threat to people's jobs? What would you say, Nick? Yes or a no? It's a definite yes. Dan? No, not yet. No. Dylan? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. So Nick, Nick, why yes? So, I mean, I think, Dylan, you've given some good examples there in terms of repetitive work that's going to be taken, you know, displaced through new technology. So... And we should expect that to happen, but that may not be a negative thing. It's going to create new opportunities as well. So, you know, in, in that example, I see no reason why if they're going to be taking a lot of repetitive work out of the contact centre, actually it's going to allow the contact staff to spend more time with customers and focus on customers more and actually provide a better service. And so maybe we can provide other skills and other capabilities to our customers. But I think typically technology is going to create a lot of efficiencies and improvements in organisations. And it will take out a lot of routine types of work. I guess moving forward five or 10 years in the world of autonomous vehicles and other technologies, then naturally that's also going to have a big displacement. But that will also drive new economies and new markets and new needs for new, new skills and capabilities in organizations. So what uh, difference do you think that will make to maybe HR teams? It's certainly going to change the footprint of the organization in terms of the size and the structure of the organization. And I think from a HR perspective, maybe they will be looking for different kinds of skill sets in individuals and different capabilities in the individuals that they employ. So maybe they won't be looking for a, a bookkeeper or a, a data analyst. They'll be looking for other kinds of skill sets, maybe more human skill sets, empathetic skill sets and capabilities that they can bring to the organization. So there'll still be a need for HR, but I think in terms of the kind of skills we'll be recruiting, they may be very different from what they are today. That's transactional. Yeah, and I, I'm quite intrigued by that as well, because a lot of people talk about the skills gap that exists and concerns around getting enough, essentially, coding skills into the new workforce of the future. But I see a lot of technologies and, and solution providers actually trying to make it more accessible. So you can train a robot rather than program a robot, or you can use low-code applications. Do we think that the gap around skills is going to be in the coding base or do you think it's going to be actually as I guess you're indicating more towards that human skill set around emotional intelligence and empathy and all the rest yeah if I just butt in here <laughs> so this is something that that yeah we think about a lot and in terms of technology it moves so quickly I would almost challenge and say can we upskill everyone quick enough to keep up with technology and I would argue probably not <laughs> which is why really we are seeing the most successful solution providers so 
UiPath is a great example on the RPA circuit. They're making their products more user-friendly so that you don't have to know how to code. And it's bridging that gap between what physically people can learn in the time that we are moving so quickly with technology. Another good example is you know, Google APIs and lots of different companies now that offer snippets of very intelligent code that we can access very, very easily using either robots or, or lots of other ways of working. Now, I don't then need to know the code. <laughs> as long as they're making it as accessible as possible for us, then we can still use it. And in that sense, the skill gap becomes smaller because it's not now going from knowing nothing to being able to make really complicated machine learning models. Actually, that gap has sort of been squeezed and brought down by those vendors as well. And the other thing to consider is that, you know, we're all here in the world of work, but in 10 years time, you know, these are going to be the people that have come through and potentially been learning bits of code at school and things like that, that maybe we didn't have the opportunity to do. So, you know, yes, there potentially is going to be a skills gap, but how much of it are we already tackling in education at the moment? Albeit maybe not as well as we can. But And if, if a lot of the intense coding is being buried in a much more user-friendly environment, so it's quite hidden in that respect, is, is that dangerous for corporates? I mean, we, we see in the news the controversy around Huawei at the moment and the Chinese ownership there, you know, but at a much smaller scale, if we're pulling together automated activities, not quite understanding what sits behind them, what happens to that information or the scale at which suddenly the solution we've just sort of cobbled together as, a, as an amateur user could do, you know, it could be firing out millions of emails to all sorts of people in an uncontrolled fashion from a corporate base that, that we'd be worried about. Does that present a, a threat and is there a means to control that? I'll jump in with that one. I think that that's been around a long, long time. And I, I think people underestimate the amount of time automation has truly been around. So we do have nice pieces of software that have packaged off the taking over of hardware and of drivers on a computer. But that's been going on a long, long time. And solutions, you know, IT solutions have been cobbled together for many, many years in a bad way in our industry. I worked on, I got quite recently, got asked to look at some COBOL that was written in 1992 that had been running since 1992 for one of the larger banks. And it never, it, it, it had never changed. And I think that while we are getting to a place where we may not necessarily have to understand as much code, I think fundamentally we're still going to have to have a developer base in the organization to run IT operations because what will end up happening is exactly the, the, what you described is dangerously cobbled together pieces of drag and drop RPA that interact with production databases and, and, and do things like that. And, and it can get us in trouble over time, especially when people come and go from organizations. And that's why I think that's why I initially answered no when you said, do, do, I, do I think that uh, we were going to be taken over by machines? I, I think that's a little bit further away than we think right now. So if we um, think about the limits of where we can deploy these kind of algorithms and that idea of trust, I think it plays quite a critical role in adoption. So at a very micro level, you know, I, I see challenges in where we deploy automated solutions to different areas around the business that humans simply don't trust the judgment of. So for instance, when you automatically schedule field workers out to a job across our geography, sometimes it makes fairly unintuitive decisions that a human might question and then undermine. And similarly, I was speaking to our environment lead at Bristol Water and he was telling me about 
an example where they were using machine learning to optimize the pumping of water. It's a very energy intensive process. And this algorithm had decided that they should turn the pumps on when the electricity was at its peak price and cost, which is completely unintuitive. That makes no sense. But the algorithm had actually discovered that all the retrospective pumping you have to do to then rebalance the system is more costly, even though the electricity is cheap, than actually just pumping when the electricity costs a lot of money. So all these unintuitive judgments that are made by machines are actually correct, but there's a massive lack of trust, I think, in, in those working with them, the, um, the machines. And if we scale that up to the, the macro level, if they're the micro examples, I think we get into the kind of the ethical limitations that I'd be interested in your views on around, particularly with machine learning, where you can't necessarily interrogate why a algorithm did what it did. Where do you see those limits of where we can deploy automations and, and how do we work alongside them as, as human individuals? Dan, maybe you can yeah. comment. So, so a project I undertook recently, again, for the same bank with the with the COBOL was a project to automate customer complaints, so to speak. So I can't tell you which bank, but when you call the bank, if you have a legitimate complaint and it reaches certain thresholds, the, the bank will redress you, right? So they will give you a, a certain amount of money to say sorry, basically. And their customer service agents were allowed to, their floor limit for that, or ceiling limit for that was, was £100. And they found that they were filling out a lot of complaints. So they wanted they wanted this, this automated. And we put in a, a machine learning model to be able to do that. We documented the process and we went through everything, dotted all, all the I's and crossed the T's. And we got to a stage where we put it out to test and it failed every single test. And it took me a long, long time to figure out why it had failed. And it failed because it wouldn't give any redress to, to pretty much anybody because I had no empathy. So people will bend the rules, right? People will take rules, especially in customer service, and they'll bend them slightly and they'll make good sound decisions for a company. A machine is a little more black and white, okay? So it's very hard to mimic that in terms of, of a machine. And the broader ethical question then comes in is, do you want to live in a world with no empathy? And will your automations and, and your pieces of code that are that are dealing directly with people, should your code be dealing directly with people or should people be dealing with people? What is better for the company? And then you can then make that even broader at a government level in terms of making policy, in terms of arming our nation and so on. And, and how far do you want to go with that? So for myself, there is there most certainly is ethical boundaries. And I think it's very important to us as developers that we have a clear set of ethical guidelines for when we go to do these pieces of work. And in, in terms of overcoming the issue of just mimicking empathy, is, is that something that can be overcome? Yeah, it's interesting. So I've been working on a project called Theodora lately, and Theodora is the sonic software attempt at, at passing the Turing test. So it's a chat robot that will try to fool you into thinking you're talking to a, to, to a person when you're not. So I've been working a lot with the uh, psychiatry department in Cardiff Uni and, and we went off and we came back and we were looking at the different types of personas that you want to start to look at to make people think that. And there is one persona that comes out through and through all the time. And essentially what we're trying to do is create a digital psychopath. So somebody that will mimic emotion and mimic empathy and not feel it. Um, so so where, where is the ethical, ethical boundary there? I don't know if you can put that in, but that's what we've been doing. 
doing that. They're trying to create a digital psychopath. That's what I'm trying to do, yes. (laughs) Oh, that makes perfect sense. It does make sense. As as terrifying as that is, it is absolutely what I'm trying to do. It's going quite well at the moment. Uh, she she has her good moods and bad moods, but we're getting there. Okay. <laughs> so, I, I mean, this is fantastic. And I think exploring these limitations is is really fascinating and we have to be really careful with it. If we go to the other side of the coin, we're seeking business efficiencies in, in how we deploy these technologies and what it enables for us. Can you help us grapple with what the size of the prize is in terms of what automations and artificial intelligence um, can do for us? Nick, I think you've got, you caught me i was going to get worse actually but i'm I'm going to keep going nick you've got quite a keen interest in where the fourth industrial revolution can can take us and and what it will mean for companies have you got a view on what the opportunity available to us is can i just pick up on just that last question just one more point on on the last question just in terms of um some of the ethical stuff around some of these advanced technologies so i think there's already been some studies in the um, west coast of the states where they can see that there's actually bias that's being built into some of these new technologies, whether they're machine learning or whether they're AI or whatever they may be. But actually, the bias of the individual that's doing the coding at the back end is actually coming out in terms of the output of that particular piece of code. And that itself is creating problems. So that could create a legal challenge down the line, depending on how that's being used and what organization for what purpose. So there are some really big challenges there that need to be considered. They probably just haven't really been commercially unearthed yet and actually understood in terms of what they could do. But there are already indications that there are biases coming into the way that code has been delivered in some of these new advanced codes. Mm, and I think there's, um, I think we can expect a lot of guidance and potential policy and legislation around how we control quality data sets upon which these machine learning algorithms are built to ensure we haven't got an, any inherent biases within those data sets that then leads to some kind of bias in whatever the, uh, the algorithm is deploying. I think that I think that's really a problem, actually, because the speed of the regulators to kind of catch up and and catch some of these things is way behind the speed of these developers. When you consider, you know, these iPhones have been around now just for just eleven years, and Google and Amazon have been going for about twenty, twenty-one years, so not not particularly long. Their advancement technology is way, way, way faster than like UK policy or American policy or government policy. So that's a real challenge, actually, in terms of how they catch up. And it's interesting that Tim Cook came out a couple of weeks ago in the papers and talking about the need for regulation, you know, and he's running one of the biggest organizations in the world. So they recognize that actually these things are running away quicker and they're going to create a number of problems. So the whole regulatory footprint going forwards with these technologies is really interesting. I completely agree. And it's it's, it's really interesting to watch the really rapid growth of the whole area of AI and ethics as a discipline and understanding how you can then build that regulation. So jumping back to my question, okay, which is trying to explore the size of the prize and the opportunity we've got available for us for efficiencies and how we deploy these technologies. Nick, I was saying you've got a keen interest in the fourth industrial revolution and where it might take us. What, what opportunities do you see ahead that we might be able to exploit? I think there's an open-ended view in terms of opportunity. It kind of depends on what business you are and what you're doing. So if your goal is around efficiency, then then clearly there are tools. And obviously, Dylan, you're very much in that space in terms of taking out a lot of the repetitive work in organizations and improving efficiencies. If your business is around maybe serving customers or reducing your supply chain or having better transparency over your supply chain and your products from source right through to customer sale, then you know a lot of these technologies will actually support and improve that business line. So I spoke to someone yesterday, and they were talking about 
Walmart in the States. And apparently they've now started to look at the, the use of blockchain for every single supplier that's on their books to make sure they've got full transparency of actually where that product's come from, where it was farmed, who delivered it, who supplied it, when did it come into their store, which store has it gone to. So if there are any potential issues with their products, they can actually identify the source for that particular problem and actually where that may be in their stores. So it probably depends on on what your company target's going to be. But I think the technologies that are coming through in the next five to 10 years through this fourth industrial revolution, to me, span industries that they're not just about water utilities or retail banking or pharmaceutical and healthcare. You know, these technologies are actually going across multiple industries. And I think that makes it really interesting at this particular point in time. So if, if we move away then from looking at just company level and, and we look at markets in general and, and cities in general, and we think of what is at the heart of the fourth industrial revolution around interconnectivity of, of these new emerging technologies, we can see quite a, a big influence. So if we pick cities, first of all, there, there's a host of technologies that are emerging that will connect city infrastructure, citizens and businesses together in a way that hasn't been possible before. So you think Li-Fi and 5G and the Internet of Things, there's more buzzwords there. You didn't, you didn't ring the bell, Dan. I'm all right with those buzzwords. <laughs> yeah. I forgot about the bell. <laughs> but collectively, they, they, they make the, the concept of a smart city, and it's a, it's a broad kind of concept. What does that mean to you? Maybe, Nick, you can start us off on that one again. I, I guess for me, a smart city, so clearly digitally enabled through a number of services that that city provides to the people who may be in a business footprint or maybe uh, just a society as, as a whole. It's got to have a strong environmental footprint uh, and making sure you know it's kind of carbon neutral and using uh, renewable sources, ideally kind of self-sustaining as well. But I think there's a whole stack of technologies, Chris, I guess, that, I guess that come into a smart city scope, but certainly things around 5G, excellent connectivity, IoT devices, smart traffic lights, autonomous vehicles, the ability to turn on street lamps as and when uh, it's necessary, but also being able to tag and identify when things like rubbish are on the streets or there's maybe a health and safety risk and digitizing a whole asset infrastructure. So we, we saw something last year and some of the work that we did last year here at Bristol to have a look at the digitized view of, uh, of Cambridge and also of Edinburgh. Edinburgh. That's right. And that to me was fascinating because actually you could actually go down to, I think it was like a, a one centimetre depth in terms of accuracy using that drone image and actually identifying a whole level of detail within the smart or within the city. So I think if that can become more accessible, that kind of information, it can be refreshed more often than having that, that digital identity of the city and then actually overlaying that with 5G connectivity and sensors and other, uh, other entities makes it very interesting. And what would the role of a water company within a smart city look like? What, what, what do we think it could evolve to be? Dylan, I don't know if you've got a, a view on how this, this might emerge, having been in our incubator for yeah. a little while. I mean, I, I think the first thing to be said about like what is the art of the possible, if, if you like, is we don't know and, and we almost shouldn't know <laughs> um, because in pushing forward the boundary of what we can achieve with tech, we're, we're kind of opening up the scope, but not really implementing things. So we talk a lot about the connectivity around um, big cities with 5G and stuff like that. 
we've got work to do to put all of that in place, but that's not the solutions that the companies will use. They, that will come later. <laughs> it's almost that we have to sort of drive forward the boundary in terms of allowing these new technologies. And then afterwards, we'll come through and, and build all of our really high-tech solutions based on that framework. So it, for water companies, uh, for instance, you know, I could see much, much more efficient use of the water network in terms of where water is, where outages are, and pumps being able to reallocate water to different areas around a city very, very efficiently and not wasting any a water, but also energy, you know, it takes energy to pump water around. And if we get that wrong, you know, that the, there's some really big expenditures for, for companies like like Bristol Water and others. So, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think we don't know what the future will hold and, and almost we shouldn't. You know, it's there for us to, to discover over the next few years. But every company, I think, with just a little bit of thought can begin to scratch the surface in terms of what the frameworks that we are now seeing emerging can do for them in terms of what they can make um, as solutions and things like that. One of the intriguing lines of thoughts that is coming out of, I guess, some of those frameworks that are emerging is the idea of citizen sensing. So we've all now got very connected devices and computers sitting in our pockets as we as we walk around. And Dan, we were discussing this mm. the other day. So give us a little bit on what, what does that really mean and, and, and what opportunity might that hold or what what challenges might it face as well? So this is the idea of turning everybody in the world into a sensor. And our smart tech that's either sat in our pockets or, or in our homes, essentially we turn into a, a massive data giving exercise so that we can start to build a, a better picture of the world and how we live. It's a beautiful idea. I, I think it's amazing to think that we, we live in a time where we could start to look at using what's in our pockets to monitor global warming, uh, changes in the environment, traffic in certain cities, smog, all that sort of stuff is just, the concept is just amazing. The problem is it's pure science fiction because we're never going to be able to do that. We can't get it together to to, to push an update out to most smartphones without it coming through with, with, with some sort of bug. I think on a smaller scale, we've already seen it for better or for worse, with, with Alexa. So Alexa's been recording our, our conversations in our house for quite some time to improve voice recognition. We've seen it with iPhones and with Google and what people are searching for. And it is there. My wish would be, though, that we could start to take that technology and use the, this concept of citizen sensing for the, for the good of mankind rather than to the extent we're doing at the moment. Plus, I suspect we're all quite positive optimists yeah. in terms of yeah. where yeah. this kind of technology might take yeah. us. So yeah. just another quick show of hands or, or, or canter around the room on what is our feeling about the potential here? Is this going to be a positive thing for us or are we going to have so many control issues and technological issues that actually it it, it is at this point hype and I should be ringing that, that bell in the middle of the table? Nick, do you want to... For which technology or for technologies in, in general? For the, for the concept of citizen sensing. Ooh, crikey. I'm going to let the guy take that one. <laughs> <laughs> I've I got a couple of things, like, sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek, you know, isn't it there already? You know, with obviously lots of things in the news around Huawei and stuff like that, you know, isn't that the problem that that is that they're setting, you know, is that, that our phones in our pockets and everything, they are sensors right now. But again, doesn't it go back to this, the framework is there, we just need to start well, to using quote, it. <laughs> to, quote, to quote Peter Parker's uncle, with great <laughs> power become, comes great responsibility, right? The problem is, though, that as human beings, as the human race, 
we can't get it together to be able to use this information in in a way that is going to promote our own interests. We're very much siloed in what our immediate interests are rather than than our long term interests should be. And I think that's that's the major problem. But there are but there are people that, that can use that. So I guess if you look at Facebook and what it's done with the Analytica scandal from last year, then you know there are people that can use that data even if they've received it in an inappropriate way to a great advantage. And I think that's going to continue for some time and until there's better control over some of these technologies and maybe better enforcement through regulation and and, and methods like that, then it's going to become a bit tricky, I think, for the next few years. There's, there's lots of dangers out there and, and lots of these technologies can be very, very positive like for uh, for society but at the same time they can also be very very negative in terms of their impact so it's just having the right sense of judgment in terms of how they're used so uh, I'll, I'll move us on because i guess that, that that that's that's cities if we think of markets which was the other area that we see technology having a, a big impact on we see again a lot of how technology is changing markets so we as consumers have a lot more insight than we used to have we're much more fussy than we used to be we're getting more demanding. We're all seeking that Amazon experience. And markets exist that never did before. So the concept of a tablet seemed fairly ridiculous until the iPad made it desirable. Cryptocurrency is challenging the concept of third-party intermediaries in currency, and open banking is creating room for all sorts of innovation and new products. And actually, those last two, I think, are quite interesting for the water industry, and particularly for the new non-household market. So if you're not in the water industry, that's, that's broadly the B2B retail market. And Nick, you played a, a leading role in the team that prepared Bristol Water for the, the new non, non-household market. And actually, you must be really pleased to see Bristol recognised as one of the leading performers from the wholesale side in that. But you're now also the chair of the Digital Strategy Committee for Mosul. So that's the, the market operator for England's water retail market. Where do you see the main influences from technology for, for that market that's still quite new for the water industry? Yeah, so I, so I think it's interesting. And I've kind of shared some views on this now a few times, Chris. So firstly, it's great to see Bristol's number one in terms of the retail market and uh, and market performance and operational performance. That's really, really fantastic. So um, really delighted to see that last week. But I think actually, I think there's opportunities there for the English retail water market. So, you know, we're a relatively new market. It's been going a couple of years. We've got a smaller customer footprint in terms of 1.2 million business customers in the marketplace. And we, we don't carry 17 or 18 years with the legacy problems that maybe are affecting the energy markets at, at present. The energy markets are quite mature in terms of their thinking around forward technologies, things like drone technology to do surveys, things like blockchain to do market trading and machine learning and artificial intelligence. And they've been talking about this now for a long time, and they've already got consortiums uh, in place working together on how a new market arrangement could be. But we haven't been doing that yet uh, in the water sector. But I think there's definitely an opportunity, and I think technologies like blockchain look interesting to me. I mean, the the idea of blockchain is it, it, it allows us to take out third-party intermediaries in a transaction and allows companies to trade point-to-point or peer-to-peer. And, you know, currently we've got retailers and then we've got the market operator in the middle and then we've got wholesalers. And we kind of transact and trade through that third-party Mosul and through their third-party systems. And blockchain potentially allows us to kind of take out that third-party system, not Mosul, take the technology out of the equation and allow trading parties, retailers and wholesalers to interact directly based on that technology. I think if you add into the mix smart metering and smart devices, I think that really changes everything because some of the biggest issues currently in the marketplace are around meter read performance 
that is getting worse over the last couple of years. It's not getting better. So I think the latest stats, I may be wrong, are around about 15% of meters that haven't been read. And that's an increasing number. So there's there's problems there with, with meter reads. And there's problems there also with debt issues in the market. So if a customer's got some debt and uh, they want to switch, then often that switch may not go through because of the outstanding debt issue. I think technologies like blockchain allow a number of different actors to come into the marketplace and perform a slightly different role. So what I've recently presented on is the ability maybe that we would generate a blockchain architecture. Retailers and wholesalers would be represented on the architecture through their own respective node. Regulators and the market operator would have access to the information that's committed to that blockchain. But also it would allow other actors and other entities to come into the marketplace. So maybe we would allow debt management companies to come in They'd have their own node and they'd be able to procure debt as part of a switch transaction that actually was in line with their risk profile for their organization and what they thought was suitable. That may allow a switch to go through and may take one of those blockers out of the current issues in the marketplace. Maybe we could allow other markets or other actors to come into the marketplace. So maybe we could generate a new marketplace for meter readers, maybe a bit like a gig economy could come in and actually if you've got a retailer that actually resides in the very north of England but they've got a demographic and a customer base that's got lots of sites in the south of the UK which they might find difficult to go and service as a customer in terms of meter reads then maybe we can provide a marketplace where we can put meter reads into a market into an auction into a bidding process and actually allow an accredited meter reader to go out and read that meter for £10, £15, £20, whatever it may be. Maybe for the wholesaler, they could also do that. So if they're concerned that a particular meter for a key customer has not been read and they can't get the retailer to go and read that meter for whatever reason, maybe they would be incentivized to put a piece of work into a marketplace to allow an accredited meter reader to go and read that meter so that they know for sure they've got a a level of assured revenue that's going to come through and they can calculate it in their forecasts. I think there are the opportunities that that blockchain may be able to exploit and introduce for the water market and I think if you then start to think about smart metering and the ability to put smart meters out there then that's another big game changer so I know there's lots of different technologies around smart metering at the moment but there's been some good work done I think by Thames Water and also United Utilities uh, and also believe Southern Water and they've they've tried it they've, they've tried it with uh, I think Uber drivers going around and collecting the reeds based on you know the RFID signal that's, that's coming out but I think if we had a much better pattern of meter reading from a smart meter we would know the consumption we'd be able to calculate the consumption and if we put that onto a blockchain architecture maybe we could calculate it using a smart contract instantaneously and retailers and wholesalers would know you know within maybe days and weeks actually what their their revenue forecasts were going to be as opposed to currently waiting through the current 15 or 16 month settlement cycle that takes place so Sounds like there's a huge amount of potential there and a, and, a, and a range of opportunities that we could pursue, you know, based on this technology. You mentioned there that one big benefit, and if we're thinking of efficiency, would be around those lead times of the current transactions to get them resolved and settled. Is that the main benefit that blockchain would bring to this scenario in terms of opening up all those opportunities? Or are there other reasons if we're asking ourselves, why blockchain? I, th- I think one of the main things... So so for now, it's a consideration, it's an idea around maybe how the market could move forward. I think one of the key benefits for it actually is for the customer, because if we can put in smart infrastructure and we can put in interday or interweek trading in terms of value exchange, 
then actually the customer would know pretty quickly what their bill is and what they what what money they owe to their their water retailer, and they'd be very clear in terms of their position. At the moment, they don't always know because their re- their meters are not always read, and there are there are blockers in the process. So, I think for the customer it would be it would be beneficial, and of course for the the retailers and the and the wholesalers, they would know exactly where their financial position is going to be based on the consumption that's been taken. I think also for the wholesalers with the smart meter network, maybe it would generate more insights in terms of other problems within the water network that could generate other efficiencies in the wholesale organizations in their asset infrastructures. But until we get the data and until we get the insights, it's difficult to understand actually what that's going to generate for us. Um, can I just say as as well, I think um, on that blockchain point, just there's a concept within it around crowd validation. And so surely yeah. that makes it so well placed for markets because markets yeah. are about people, groups of people collectively operating under a, a specific set of rules. And I think that as humans, we get scared of the companies that have control over the market. So the big banks and, and the this and the that, because we are putting a lot of trust in them. And so I think where blockchain will work really well in those kind of situations is that we are removing all of that control from one entity and we're putting it in the power of the people. And it's that crowd validation that means that we should be able to trust it in a way that we might not trust a, a bank or a, or a big entity, you know. But that is one of the big drivers in terms of embedding trust. And, you know, the notion about building consensus mechanisms based on smart contracts so that actually everyone signed up to a certain level of activity or commitment, etc. And once they've all been met, then it's committed into the blockchain and the transaction is made. And actually, the idea is that if you work together, if you collaborate further as an industry and you build these consensus mechanisms, you don't need a third party to handle that transaction for you because you've already agreed it up front. And it takes out, so in, in, the, in this entity, you know, theoretically, we wouldn't need a, a central market operating system. We wouldn't need a CMOS. We would still need a Mosul, still need someone to operate the market and manage the market, but maybe you wouldn't need the technology layer that sits in between just so that Dylan as a retailer can share the meter reads with his customers with me, Nick, as, uh, as, as a wholesaler. We could do it directly peer-to-peer without that third party in the way. I think that's great. As I think as we've kind of gone around all the different topics that we've discussed today, my main takeaway here is is that theme of trust. We, we talk about technology enabling better service and business efficiencies, but there is opportunity in the trust that we could provide through things like blockchain, but it's also a massive blocker in that there's huge trust issues in, in trusting what machines will do for us, the decisions they'll make on our behalf and what impact they'll have on, on our future workforce. So it's a real challenge, I think, to get right as, as, as we move forwards. I think, that, I think that's right, Chris, and that's one of the biggest challenges in the next five, 10 years with these new technologies going to come through. I mean, some technologies like blockchain are meant to embed trust, but if you start talking, I don't know, to the leadership team here or in other organisations about starting to apply an, an AI that's automatically going to pump water around the network and how do we know we can trust it well actually there's quite a journey to go on to make sure people understand the capabilities of these technologies and can they be trusted and also for customers you know are customers really going to trust businesses that are going through a big digital evolution and you don't want to lose that faith with your customers you want to make sure that you maintain that trust with them definitely it's a tricky thing so to close We've touched on a lot of the, the positive trends in technology that are pursuing efficiencies in our businesses. I'm interested in the flip side of that. What, what in your minds, are those technologies that are, are more hype than substance? So we're going back to our, our bell here that's not been <laughs> rung for some time. What, what, what technologies would you question the future of? Who's, who's going to be brave enough to take a first pitch at that? Not to be controversial, you know me. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, you know, that's 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 a really hard question to to, to answer. I'm more concerned. I, I I suppose I'm 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 less concerned with diagnosing whether something is 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 hype or not rather than dissecting what, what it actually does because I think the main problem that we have at the moment is buzzwording and, and we attach these buzzwords to pieces of software and, and technologies that are so far removed from what they actually do you don't have a clue what's what what's going on under the hood at all and I think if we're going to go down the route of, of trying to identify what what's more hype than substance i i think we should start using the correct terminology to begin with and and possibly even making companies when they call something ai or they call something machine learning to actually back that up and show how that that is the case i've looked at a lot of systems with these types of so-called technologies inside them and built that are not they're, they're nowhere close to it um that, that is, I have to say, some beautiful insight, but you have dodged the question. <laughs> I did, yeah. yeah. Anyone else want to take a point? Well, yeah, I, to be honest, I, I think I'm probably going to dodge the question uh, in a very similar way. I, that, I think that there's lots of great solutions around at the moment, lots of great bits of tech and stuff like that. And I think to, to sort of blanket say this is not going to you know, have legs in the future is probably not necessarily the right way to think about it. But they've probably all got some nice if somewhat niche uh, applications but going back to what Dan said you know one of the real problems at the moment is the hype that the vendors uh, put around their products and stuff like that because you know I can say sort of fairly candidly we're, we're on the ground putting things in place and, and and actually managing people's expectations to reduce from that sort of hype bubble into the realms of the possible is sometimes challenging and you know it can feel like we're sort of pushing uphill against that hype because people like to shout about their you know w- what they do and their technology and it's going to solve every problem ever and every new bit of tech is the silver bullet that we've been looking for and, and I think I can safely say looking around this room we probably all know that there is no such thing as this silver bullet that apparently every every bit of tech is is uh, going to give to companies. So I think in answer to your question, uh, I don't often see tech and I think, God, that's terrible and it's it's not got any use at all. There's probably some great niche uh, uses for lots and lots of the solutions around. I think more of a challenge though is just trying to navigate through the hype to try and really see those products for what they are and what they can deliver for you because it will be positive, I'm sure. You just need to make sure that uh, it's realistic as well. Also great insight. Another dodge. <laughs> no, one, no one wants to commit to that. I mean, I remember a long time ago, I said I didn't think PHP was going to be used much <laughs> in the future. And that was totally wrong. Nick, are you going to be bold enough to, to give us a specific? So I think there's, there's two things for me. So um, the one thing that makes me squirm a little bit all the time is artificial intelligence in that term, because I think there's just so many things inside that that just need some further qualification and clarification. So... It's such a widely used term across so many different technologies. So are we talking about voice? Are we talking about kind of cognitive and neural networks? Are we, are we talking about machine learning? And I think it's just a term that's used far too frequently and too broadly. So that's, that's a bit of a, a concern in terms of maybe when true AI is going to arrive. If you, if you talk to someone or if you read books like Ray Kurzweil, he's saying that we're going to have that in about 10 years' time. But I don't know. But I, I guess that the probably the, the overarching thing for me is actually the speed of getting some of these technologies into real commercial practice and making them really viable for use in across industries or across businesses. And I think it'll be interesting to see just how fast they come through. So I think 5G is a good example for me because my understanding is there's a much bigger infrastructure cost to kind of get that deployed. And bear in mind, we can't even roll out 
three or four G to parts of the UK, you know, we're going to start rolling out five G, and that's yeah. going to take a massive investment. So, it will be an absolute game changer. But in terms of how quickly that can be delivered, and it's more likely to come to the smart or to the city areas, you know, the first of all, as opposed to maybe the rural areas. But the speed of change and speed of delivery, Chris, I think for some of these will be interesting, and I don't think they're going to come through quite as quick as we think. Yeah, I'd agree. And, and, and 5G is, is definitely one that just naturally in terms of the infrastructure required congregates around cities and, and, and creates real challenge about reaching the rest of the UK. So guys, thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's been really insightful. Trust definitely seems to be the, the, the theme with all of this, both in terms of what we can win and the challenge we have to overcome. So uh, thanks for all your insights. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for joining us on our Innovation Quest. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and if it has sparked any thoughts on where we could work together to push the industry forwards, we'd love to hear from you. Please do go to our website or contact us through innovation at bristolwater.co.uk. 